I'm going to begin by reading God's word. God's word in chapter 14 of 1 Kings, verses 1 through 20. 1 Kings chapter 14, verses 1 through 20. We've learned of uh, the split between the southern kingdom of Judah and the ten northern tribes that was part of God's judgment upon Solomon's son Rehoboam for his recklessness, for Solomon's idolatry. The kingdom has been split, and I remind you that we're, we're learning in 1 Kings, in, in some ways, why such a severe judgment? Why did God scatter and disperse the ten northern tribes and later judge Judah? And we're learning that reason, that story. I'll begin in verse 1. At that time, Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, became sick. And Jeroboam said to his wife, Arise now and disguise yourself so that they will not know that you are the wife of Jeroboam. And go to Shiloh. Behold, Ahijah the prophet is there, who spoke concerning me that I would be king over this people. And take ten loaves with you, some cakes and a jar of honey, and go to him. He will tell you what will happen to the boy. Then Jeroboam's wife did so. And arose and went to Shiloh and came to the house of Ahijah. Now Ahijah could not see, for his eyes had set because of his old age. Now Yahweh had said to Ahijah, Behold, the wife of Jeroboam is coming to inquire of you concerning her son, for he is sick. You shall say thus and thus to her, for it will be that when she arrives that she will pretend to be another woman. Now it happened that as Ahijah... Hijah heard the sound of her feet coming in the doorway that he said, Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend to be another woman? For I am sent to you with a harsh message. Go, say to Jeroboam, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Because I exalted you from among the people and made you ruler over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you, Yet you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commandments and who walked after me with all his heart to do only that which was right in my sight. You also have done more evil than all who were before you and have gone and made for yourself other gods and molten images to provoke me to anger and have cast me behind your back. Therefore, behold, I am bringing evil on the house of Jeroboam. I will cut off from Jeroboam every male person, both bond and free, in Israel, and I will make a clean sweep of the house of Jeroboam as one sweeps away dung until it is all gone. Anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dogs will eat, and he who dies in the field, the birds of the sky will eat, for Yahweh has spoken it. But you, arise, go to your house. When your feet enter the city, The child will die, and all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him, for he alone of Jeroboam's family will come to the grave, because in him something good was found toward Yahweh, the God of Israel, in the house of Jeroboam. Moreover, Yahweh will raise up for himself a king over Israel, who will cut off the house of Jeroboam this day and from now on. So Yahweh will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water, and he will uproot Israel from this good land which he gave to their fathers, 
and will scatter them beyond the river because they have made their Asherim, provoking Yahweh to anger. And he will give Israel over on account of the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned and with which he made Israel to sin. Then Jeroboam's wife arose and went away and came to Tirzah. As she was entering the threshold of the house, the child died. And all Israel buried him and mourned for him according to the word of Yahweh, which he spoke through his servant Ahijah the prophet. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, how he made war and how he reigned, behold, they are written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel. Now the time that Jeroboam reigned was 22 years, and he slept with his fathers, and Nadab, his son, became king in his place. Amen. This is God's word. And before I pray, I'll just note, um, again, if you're visiting with us tonight, uh, you heard the word Yahweh. I'm reading from the Legacy Standard. Um, it's just a new version that uh, interprets some of the Hebrew as literally as possible. Instead of having capital L-O-R-D as a title, uh, it just, it's helpful in the evening services. I've been reading from this version because I think as we go through the Old Testament, it just maybe brings us a little bit closer to the original. So let's pray to the Lord now and ask for his help. Our God and Father, the very Yahweh, Jehovah, the one of whom this text speaks, we come to you tonight as a living God, and we come tonight to you asking that by your own spirit that you would bless us with your presence tonight. We pray that you would teach us and that these studies in Sunday evenings would be no mere historical studies, but that, oh God, we pray, even though small our gathering may be, that through the reading and preaching of your living word, that you may bring about your holy purposes and give life. We pray that we might be rebuked, corrected, encouraged. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, there's a lot of strange worship going on these days, um, and in fact, there's actually not much worship going on these days. Um, it's not so much that there's a thou shalt have a Sunday evening service anywhere. I try to be clear with people, there is not. It is not inherently unbiblical for a church not to have a Sunday evening service. I only reference that to say that it seems in our days not many people are interested in worship. Um, unless it's fun, exciting, uh, entertaining, and uh, really uh, man-made rather than word-directed. And we're learning as we study in this portion of God's word that worship is very serious business. It's joyful. We are to worship the Lord with joy and with singing. We are to come in before his courts with gladness. And we do. And our gatherings, I trust, are full of joy and happiness. And I love to see you visiting with one another. And there's a joy of the Lord. And that's part why we come to worship. 
But in the days we're living in, there's not many people, even among those who profess Christ, who are interested in worship. And that's because they've been lied to. They've somehow been told that you no longer have to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and somehow that God is no longer really interested in in corporate worship or, or bringing ourselves into the house of God to worship him in the ways that he has instructed. And so we do all kinds of things in our day in the name of worship that has little or nothing to do with what we're instructed in the Bible, particularly in the New Testament. How did we get to this place? Well, people have been lied to. And the fact is that there were some, some leaders along the way who, who gave people what they wanted. I remind you that Jeroboam is now the king of the northern tribes of Israel. He is been promised by God that if he follows the law of God, that God will actually be with him and establish him. And, and he won't remo- God won't remove the house of David down in, down in the southern kingdom of Judah. But if Jeroboam in the north follows the Lord, the Lord will be with him. The Lord will bless him. But Jeroboam, I remind you, had reasoned, well, I just want to be sure and, and I'm worried, Jeroboam thought to himself, that if my people start going down to Jerusalem to worship God at the temple as God instructed, that they'll start to depart from me. And so he came up with his own creative worship service. In fact, he did a, he did a, a multi-campus approach. And I'm having a little fun there with that. But he did. He did a multi-site approach. You know, it was more convenient. And, and uh, they did uh, not one, but two locations in the north where you could go worship God. And you know what? Because it's so hard to worship a God that you can't actually see, he helped God out a little bit by making not one, but two graven image, two golden calves, two golden bulls. And saying, here Israel is your God. It was all, it seemed, kosher. After all, they were worshiping Yahweh. It was in the name of the Lord, the the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Never mind that Aaron had tried that in the wilderness and it didn't go so well. It was consumer-friendly, consumer-oriented, idolatrous worship. And we have much of the same thing going on in our day. And it's very serious, and this is a sobering text because we learn here that God is not indifferent. Far from what many think that God is, is down with that, that he's good with whatever, we're learning in our text that God is actually a very jealous God. After all, as I've already mentioned, Deuteronomy 6, we are commanded that the Lord our God is one and that we are to love him with all that we are. And, of course, the Ten Commandments, you know them. Um, One of the first ones is that we shall have no other gods. Second one is we shall not make any graven image. And what does Jeroboam go? He breaks number one, he breaks number two, and, and then the rest, it just goes on down the line. So in the passage, the command of God is clear concerning worship. It's not like there's a lack of teaching on how God is to be worshipped. There wasn't then and there isn't today. There is not a lack of instruction as to how God is to be worshipped. So the commands of God are clear. The call of grace is clear. 
God rehearses to Jeroboam, essentially in this text, hey, hey, Jeroboam, anybody home? You remember you were a nobody, and in grace and kindness, I gave you the opportunity to be king over 10 of the tribes of my people. God was grace, and so that grace, and not only that, remember back in chapter 13, do you remember that whole amazing scene with the, the prophet that came and and uh, he ended up being uh, killed by a lion. But before that, he had prophesied against Jeroboam's idolatrous worship center in Bethel. And, and Jeroboam, in anger, had said, seize that man. And as soon as he said, seize that man, Jeroboam's hand was seized. And in chapter 13, uh, verse 6, Jeroboam kind of quickly changed his mind and uh, said to the prophet, oh, and by the way, uh, could you pray to God that he would fix my hand? Because this is rather uncomfortable. God had graciously, what does it say? Verse, chapter 13, verse 6. The king's hand was restored and it became as it was before. That was grace, wasn't it? That was grace. And, and then wasn't it a grace even that, that God, in a frightening way, fulfilled his word? He commanded that prophet not to stop from returning home. The, the prophet disobeyed and and was killed by a lion? I mean, that ought to have been a wake-up call. That, in fact, was a form of grace. Warning, Jeroboam, what happens when you deviate from his word, even if you're the prophet who gave the word? That's a good reminder for pastors, by the way, that we don't think just because we preach the word, somehow we're not out from under the word. So the command of God is clear, the call of grace is clear, and the casting behind of God's name is clear. I'm using that phrase from from what the prophet Ahijah says to Jeroboam's wife. He says, verse 9 of chapter 14, you have cast me behind your back. It's, it's, a very, um, it's a very personal, vivid image. It's not pleasant, but God is not dainty when it comes to talking about and dealing with sin. And essentially, God is saying, you've treated me like what you throw behind you when you visit the latrine. That's how Jeroboam had treated God. And so that's clear. The casting behind of God's name is clear. And so all with all this clarity, with all this clarity, the clarity of command of how God is to be worshipped, the call of grace, the clarity of that grace, and the clarity of Jeroboam's repeated, ongoing refusal to change, God responds. That's what we find in this passage tonight. In the time that remains, I'm going to break up our passage into four sections. We're going to look first at verses 1 through 6. And let's look for a few moments at what I've, I want to title rabbit foot religion. Some of us, uh, I don't know, if they still sell rabbit feet? I always thought that was kind of creepy when I was a kid. They'd sell these little keychains with rabbit feet, a little rabbit foot. The kids are, younger kids, I think, are looking at me like, What? But, you know, I guess it was supposed to be good luck. Is that, is that what it was? Right? So it was good luck somehow to have a dead rabbit's foot hanging on your key set. 
And uh, so there they were. It was, it was good luck. It was, um, it, was, it was like a lucky charm. And that's how Jeroboam thinks about God's word. He, he really wants nothing to do with, with sound, conservative, Bible teaching, religion. But when he's in a bind and his child is really, really sick, it doesn't hurt to take your chances and to see if a little bit of that religion stuff will work. So he comes up with a ploy. He, he knows that uh, the prophet Ahijah, who had, who had told him that he would be king, probably doesn't think too much of what he's done with his charge. And so he comes up with a scheme to send his wife, and, and <laughs> there is some, uh, some humor in that he tells his wife to... Uh, uh, to not reveal that she's the wife of Jeroboam, and yet this old prophet can't see anymore. So um, it's all for nothing. And, uh, you know, Jeroboam doesn't hurt, doesn't thinks, well, you know, if we, if, we, if we put a little bit in the offering plate, maybe that'll help the case. I mean, in this case, it's a little bit of bread and verse three and a jar of honey. And, you know, maybe that'll help, you know, the preacher be a little more oriented to make a special prayer and maybe you can do something. Um, I, I found that over the years uh, that, that people tend, in this culture, this is a post-Christian culture we're in, uh, and I, I, seriously, I mean this in pity, people have no idea, they, they don't know anything about, you know, biblical faith, and all they know is, you know, when they're really in, in a bad place, they need help, and, and so they look to sometimes like a pastor like me, like a local shaman, and they have no idea who I am, what I do, but they know we got to do something, and, and maybe that'll help. Um, I remember some parents coming to me desperately wanting me to do something either, you know, sprinkle or baptize their child because, you know, they were scared. And, and they, they thought that I would do some, some magic, you know, whatever practice and, and their child would be okay. That's how many people treat religion. That's how many people we, we used to, I guess, we Protestants used to kind of take our digs at our Roman Catholic neighbors here in the area, we, we'd laugh about, oh, they only go to worship on Saturday or maybe once or twice a year. Well, that's what Protestants do anymore. In fact, it's becoming increasingly among evangelical churches, we're not clear what we're protesting anymore. And so it's rabbit foot religion. It's, it's just give me a little bit of religion. Maybe if I go to church, maybe if I give God something, maybe, maybe that'll help and things will go a little bit better. There's no clear love for the Lord. There's no intent to submit to him. It's a pitiful and idolatrous situation. Well, this old prophet, Ahijah, hears her when she comes. And he says, verse 6, Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend to be another woman? For I am sent to you with a harsh message. What a... That's how God's word works sometimes. You're going along and, and uh, God, through his word, whether it's reading or hearing the reading and the preaching of God's word, God startles you and finds you. You didn't know that uh, God knew where you were at and what you needed to hear. He still does that, in a sense, from his word. And she must have been startled. She actually doesn't say anything. The rest of the passage verses 7 through 16 is the 
the judgment of God. So let's look now, secondly, at verses 7 through 11. We've looked at rabbit foot religion. Let's now look at God's prosecution. God has a case to bring against Jeroboam. God has a case, and he is bringing Jeroboam to court. But this is not a, this is not a, uh, this prosecutor is not cool, calm, and collected. The Lord is angry. He is incensed. He is upset with Jeroboam, to say the least. And so, verse 7, thus says the Lord, or Yahweh, the God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and made you ruler over my people of Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you, yet you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commandments and who walked after me with all his heart. You also, verse 9, nine, have done more evil than all who were before you and have gone and made for yourself other gods. That's violation of commandment number one. And you and molten images. That's violation of commandment number two. To provoke me to anger and have cast me behind your back. Therefore, I am bringing on the evil in the house of Jeroboam I will cut off from Jeroboam every male person. Now, I'm going to pause there. And, you know, you you may think this is unseemly, and I don't mean it to be at all. But in the Hebrew, it's very clear that God says in the language there, I will remove from you everyone who relieves himself against a wall. And then there God says, after that, both bond and free in Israel, and I will make a clean sweep of the house of Jeroboam as one sweeps away dung until it's all gone. In other words, and and Dale Ralph Davis points this out, God is essentially saying to Jeroboam, Jeroboam, your house stinks like a filthy, dirty bathroom, a latrine. And it's time to clean house. And God is going to do it. Very, very sobering words. Dale Ralph Davis writes concerning the passion of God. Why should Yahweh be so irate? None of the other gods or goddesses of the ancient Near East demanded or exclusive worship from their devotees. Is the Lord Yahweh a dysfunctional deity who needs therapy in order to deal with his irrational rage and bring him into line with what folks expect of normal deities? No. The fact that there was no other deity like Yahweh in this respect should clue you in that in him you are not dealing with any run-of-the-mill god or deity. He has done what no other God has done. He has entered into a covenant with his people, a marriage-like relation, which demands exclusive devotion. Even so, we can hardly grasp it, says Davis. But when there is a marriage relation and one of the spouses commits infidelity, the other spouse will be devastated, crushed, and hopefully furious. Why? Because it is the proper character of love within an exclusive relationship to be jealous and rightfully possessive of the one who is promised to be totally his or hers. 
God is the unusual God who has entered into covenant with a people and no other gods is his premier demand, Exodus 20, verse 3. To violate that is to invite his fury. I thought it was particularly helpful in view of our, in light of our study of Matthew this morning and what Jesus has to say about divorce and the union of a man and woman. So God's prosecution is, is powerful, it is potent, it is direct. And God's, with the prosecution, God issues the judgment. Verse 11, anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dogs will eat. This is for the, for the Jewish people, this is, this is unthinkable. To, to, to not be buried with a respectful burial was, was unthinkable. For us today, it's somewhat sadly not, not so significant. But if you think of Abraham and how concerned he was to have a place to, to lay his beloved wife to rest in a way that was dignified, that was the desire and wish of every Jewish man or woman. God says, no, you, you will not receive or anyone in your house will not receive any such dignity. The child, verse 12, will die. But there is some measure of grace there more in a moment. But I, I want us to just before we move to verse 12 to, to really let the, the judgment of God, the prosecution of God in verses 7 through 12 sink in 11 sink in. God is still a jealous God. He still loves his people and those who claim his name with a Holy jealousy. Well, thirdly, this evening, I want to look with you at verses 12 through 18. And I want to entitle these, this paragraph, our consideration, generational judgment. Generational judgment. The judgment begins with this child. What a, what a fearful thing. And, and in a way, we, we pity this woman, as, which is certainly reasonable but there's no indication that she herself is innocent. And we must trust the goodness and the holiness of God's judgment. It's interesting in verse 13 that God does recognize that the child alone shall be given the dignity of bearing, of being buried in the house of Jeroboam. For in him, verse 13, something good was found towards Yahweh, the God of Israel, in the house of Jeroboam. It's, it's a beautiful reminder that God in his judgment is always just, always merciful, always right. No, he does not judge the innocent in the same way as he does the guilty. That comforts us, otherwise we would be terrified by the judgment of God. He is a just judge. And he is only brought to anger and fury after repeated disobedience and blaspheming of his name and God here recognizes the innocence of this child the child is not sick and dying because of his own sin the child is sick and dying because of his father's sin and though it is a severe judgment think about this it is actually a great mercy 
that that child no longer has to live in the presence of this evil, vile, wicked man. God will take care of this child. He will be with God. He is innocent and will not be caught up in the judgment. But that judgment will go on. It will go on in the house of Jeroboam. And not only for the house of Jeroboam, God will strike Israel, verse 15. It's not just Jeroboam. The whole nation has gone along with Jeroboam. And we need to recognize in our day that, yes, we can point to leaders, pastors who who should have done something else or who have led people into all kinds of nonsense and misled the people of God. But we need at the same time to humbly recognize that God sometimes gives pastors to his people as a judgment because essentially he gives them what they want. They don't want the truth or they don't want the gospel. They don't want sin. They just want fun. They just want entertainment. They just want to feel good. They just want a psychological pep talk. And so it's not only Jeroboam, it's all Israel that has apostatized. And so God also judges Israel. And he will uproot Israel from the good land which he gave to their fathers, scatter them because they have made their Asherim. These were these these graven images, these not only the golden calves, but but they worshipped other gods because they were starting to suggest that God wasn't so jealous. And he will give Israel over. Ultimately, they will be exiled and scattered. This sin lasts. The, the, the implica- this is so sobering. We will hear in our study of 1 Kings, and if we are able, God willing, to go on to 2 Kings, and some of you will remember this, we will hear reference to the sins of Jeroboam. In 1 Kings, here we hear it in chapter 14, verse 16. We will hear the phrase, the sins of Jeroboam, in chapter 15, verse 26, verse 30, and verse 34. Chapter 16, verse 19, 26. 1 Kings 22, 52. 2 Kings chapter 10, 31, the sins of Jeroboam. 2 Kings 13, verses 6 and verse 11. 2 Kings 14, verse 24. I'm quoting here from Dale Ralph Davis's commentary. Chapter 15, verse 18, 24, 28. 2 Kings 17, 21 to 23. All these repeated references back to the sins of Jeroboam and that generation. Davis writes, the first king of ten tribes, of the ten tribes, finished them. The beginning was the beginning of the end. Jeroboam went bullish with the two calves and damned a whole people. Think of this, and this next line just sunk in. The curse of the prophet Ahijah's words on Jeroboam hangs over the next 180 years years we don't think that way we I don't think that way we we are very here and now people and we can't fathom that God takes worship so seriously 
that one generation that angers the Lord and dishonors him can have an impact so that 180 or more years later, if people knew, in addition to whatever their current sins are, God is still judging that area or that land for sins all the way back then. And I don't know the exact date, but I am telling you we are living right in the midst of it like few regions in the entire United States. We need to recognize that. God doesn't play around. He loves his name and his glory above all things. Finally, in verses 19 and 20, Entitle this, The Rest of the Story. Some of you are old enough to remember Paul Harvey, and that's the rest of the story. Verse 19 says, Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, how he made war and reigned, behold, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And there Ralph Davis makes... Very helpful observation, and we're just about done. But here's this man who rules as king over Israel, does all these different things, goes to war, engages in all kinds of politics, and I'm sure has building projects and, and buildings named after him, and so on and so forth. And, but from God's vantage point, it's of no account. He's the man who's remembered for his sins and how he led a whole nation astray. Davis writes, the word of God is unimpressed with Jeroboam's achievements. The writer of the text has little interest in Jeroboam's military or political success, but has spilled all his ink on how the king responded to the basic covenant demand. You shall have no other gods before me. Accomplishments, says Davis, don't matter. Fidelity does. That's a quotable reference. Accomplishments don't matter. Fidelity does. Verse 19 is frightening, says Davis. All the energy and exertion you have poured into making your mark in your calling may prove to be one huge irrelevance. The only thing that matters is whether you worshipped Yahweh, the Lord God, alone. Were you contented with the real God We tend to think that verse 19 is just a throwaway bibliographical note. Actually, says Davis, verse 19 is a disturbing worldview. That in the end, how we worshipped God mattered more than anything else we did in our life. So, says Davis, apply it to yourself. If it's your obituary, does it really matter that you built a successful business from scratch or retired from your company after 30 years of stellar service or belonged to the Rotary Club or loved science fiction movies or played bridge every Monday night with your social clique? Does anything matter if you don't worship the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? Worship matters. May God grant that we worship him in spirit and in truth. 
and praise God that just as he showed grace, that he has showed grace to us, hasn't he? We're here tonight. We're here this morning. It's all of grace. He wants us to worship him. He's provided everything necessary. His commands are not burdensome. He's supplied everything we need. He just looks for those, said Jesus, who worship him in spirit and in truth, according to the ways that he has laid down in his word. May God grant that we worship him. Let's pray. And so, God, this is our prayer. And tonight we pray it with a sense of urgency, for we are shaken by this text. And we understand that Jeroboam was a wicked, wretched man, but perhaps we see more of his pragmatic, disobedient heart in ourselves than we would like to see. Oh, God, cause us to love you and to serve you alone. May we take joy in the fact that that all of our life can be lived unto you as worship and help us to remember that in the end, it's really all that mattered. It's how we worshiped you. So receive our praise, we ask and offer it in Jesus' name. Amen.